Amen. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We are going to teach uh, this evening on Paul's thorn in the flesh. Now there's um, certainly the foundation for healing, and this is healing school, and so we um, focus all of our, ta- our uh, sermons and teachings in this area, in the area of healing. And without question, the number one reason that people fail to receive their healing is that they're not convinced it's the will of God for them. Faith begins where the will of God is known. You can't really believe God for something that you don't know it's his will for you to have. And the Bible says in Romans 10, 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So it's through the word of God that we find out what God's will is for our lives, pertaining to this service, particularly in the area of healing. And then we exercise faith in that will revealed by the word. Stand steadfast in faith to receive what God has for us. Now concerning the will of God in the area of healing, in my opinion, I don't believe there's anything that has destroyed the faith of Christians more than the wrong teaching on Paul's thorn in the flesh. It is generally, well in some circles at least, It is the first question people will ask. It's the first thing that they seek an answer for. And whether they know the the procedure or the process of faith as we just outlined it or not, they recognize as well you could attest. If it wasn't God's will to heal Paul, how can we know that it's his will to heal us? So we're going to start in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians Beginning in verse 16, Paul's writing to the Corinthians. The Corinthian church is a, um, well, it's a real interesting situation. Paul told the Corinthians that if anybody was an apostle to them, he was. There were divisions among the Christians there in the church at Corinth. There were some that were divided up by favorite teachers and so forth. Some said Apollos is our favorite teacher. Others said, well, we like Paul or some others said we like Peter And so it created divisions among the people. The city of Corinth itself was unmatched and unrivaled as far as false gods and temples to idols and and that type of thing. And much of the spirit of the world had crept into the church. Maybe a better way to say that is many of the people that came out of the world to be saved and to become a part of the, uh, the family of God hadn't let go of the things that they were doing before they found Jesus. And so in many cases, Jesus became just another God that they served. And so Paul had a, a very difficult time with the church at Corinth. There were situations in uh, the first letter that we know of. Actually, there were three or four letters that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. We have two of them. And some make a case for these last chapters of the second letter to the Corinthians as being the fourth letter that he wrote, and they were just kind of put together. Be that as it may, whether that's true or not, we know that Paul had more correcting to do among the Corinthian church than any other church that we have record of. Not only were there divisions among them, they were mistreating the rituals of the uh, Lord's Supper. There were people that were getting drunk during the thing and just treating it like a, a church banquet or something like that. They didn't have care for one another, but they had the manifestation of the Holy Ghost. It's, uh, it's true throughout history That where the greatest manifestations of evil spirits are, God will manifest his spirit there too. And so the Corinthian church wasn't 
uh, experienced in the gifts of the Spirit, the supernatural power of God, because they were so good or so holy. It was something that God had to do, just like, for example, in Egypt. The ten plagues were a judgment against the, the gods of Egypt. God showed that he was stronger than all the other gods. God does that in places where the devil is entrenched. And so there were this uh, letter that we want to ex examine tonight, the second letter to the Corinthians. Paul's writing it as we would write a letter as, and as he always did. He didn't write in chapter and verse. And please understand that the Holy Ghost knew what would be saved. There were other things that Paul wrote. There were other letters that other people wrote that are referenced in Scripture, but we have no record of them. But God knew. He always knew what he would save for the church. And so it's always impressed upon me the fact that the Holy Ghost knew what was going to be saved for the church, the fact that the Holy Ghost had to preserve from destruction a lot of the, the letters that we have, both Old and New Testament. And for that reason, I can see the hand of God working behind the scenes, arranging different things, covering different subjects, pronouncing certain truths for the sake of the church to come. And so with that in mind, let's read it like a letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 16. Paul said, I say again, let no man think me a fool. If otherwise, yet as a fool receive me, that I may boast myself a little. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord. Now he's saying, God didn't tell me to write this. He's saying, this is not how I would do if I wasn't trying to make a point. But he is trying to make the point. That which I speak, I speak it not after the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many glory after the flesh, I will glory also. Now here he identifies what his purpose is. He says, this is the kind of stuff that people tell you about themselves, and you listen to it. So let me compare to what they tell you. He said, for you suffer fools gladly, seeing yourselves are wise. For you suffer if a man bring you into bondage, if a man devour you, if a man take of you. If a man exalt himself, if a man smite you on the face. Paul seems to be saying that they put up with these types of things, these um, abusive actions by other ministers. And some people, these ministers he's talking about, use this type of abuse to exalt themselves at the expense of other people. Paul takes a dim view of that. Paul didn't do that. Paul speaks on several occasions to different churches about how he didn't place or make a burden, make himself a burden upon them. But instead, he worked with his hands and he took care of himself. So even back then, there were ministers that were taking advantage of the people. And Paul identifies with that for their sakes. Verse 21, I speak as concerning reproach, as though we had been weak, albeit whereinsoever any is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold too. He says, if they're bold about telling you about themselves, I'm going to be too for a little bit. Now, the way he couches this or the context of these uh, scriptures identify for us that this is not his normal way of operation, nor is it the way that God would have him to operate. But again, he's making a point. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. Now, folks, I doubt very seriously if there's anybody that's holding the candle to what Paul is talking about and speaks about concerning himself and the sacrifices he made. 
But again, every time he identifies I speak as a fool, he's saying this is not the way that I would normally operate. Neither is it the way God would have me to operate. But I'm making the point for you to get. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more. In labor is more abundant. Paul said nobody works harder than I do. In stripes above measure. Nobody's taken the beatings that I've taken. In prisons more frequent. Nobody's going to jail for the gospel more than me. In deaths off. That deaths means facing death in a variety of ways. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Now these are facts. He's just presenting the facts here. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. Thrice was I beaten with rods. Once was I stoned. Thrice I suffered shipwreck. A night and a day I've been in the deep. In journeyings often. Paul lived a tough life because he never really had a home. He was always on the go. In perils of robbers, the word perils is the word danger. In danger among robbers, in, in dangers among my own countrymen, meaning the Jews. In dangers by the heathen, meaning the unsaved. In dangers in the city. In dangers in the wilderness. In dangers in the sea. In dangers among false brethren. He's saying, I'm in danger everywhere I go. And yet the others are trying to pad their credentials by talking about themselves and leading the Corinthians astray. Verse 27, in weariness and painfulness, Paul got tired and he hurt. In watchings often, that means he missed a lot of nights sleep for the sake of the gospel. In hunger and thirst, he was without Food and water in many cases. In fastings often. Now the difference between hunger and thirst in fastings is the purpose for being without food. In cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without or come upon me from the outside. That which cometh upon me daily. He said this is the biggest burden because it's an internal thing. The care of the churches. I wonder if Paul knew what he was talking about when he said be careful for nothing. Don't be anxious or don't fret about anything. I bet Paul was tempted to worry about the churches or else he wouldn't have mentioned it. He was constantly praying for the churches because he knew what the devil was going to try to do to destroy the works that he had started by the direction of God. Beside those things that, cometh, that are without that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Now here again, he's still making the comparison with others that come in and try to take advantage or misuse the people's trust and goodwill. In other words, he's saying, they claim to be weak. Well, look at me. I could make the same claim. Who is offended and I burn not? They've apparently come in and talked about being offended by the people. And Paul said, what about me? You people have done me wrong more than anybody else. If I must needs glory, I will glory of the things which concern my infirmities. Now, this word infirmities is going to be an important word. It simply means weakness. It means frailty. It's translated different things. We'll talk about that as we go a little bit further. But the word infirmities does not automatically mean sickness. It can be used and there are times in the New Testament where it is translated sickness. But you have to find out the context to see what is being, what's being referred to. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ which is blessed forever knoweth that I, not, that I lie not. In Damascus, the governor under Aretas, the king, kept the city of the Damascenes 
with a garrison desirous to apprehend me. And through a window in a basket was I let down by the wall and escaped his hands. He said, part of my work for the Lord has been I've had to run from kings. I've got whole nations that are after me. Chapter 12. It is not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. The word expedient means helpful or profitable. It's not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. In other words, he said, now let me tell you what there is worth glorying about. All the other stuff, although it's true, is the way that men have operated here on the earth. But now let's talk about something that really deserves glory. I knew a man in Christ about 14 years ago. Whether in the body I cannot tell or whether out of the body I cannot tell, God knows. Such a one was caught up into the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knows. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. He's not saying that he was forbidden by God to say these things or uh, describe the things. He's saying I don't have words to adequately describe what I saw and heard. Of such a one will I glory. Now notice how he makes the change. He says, now that guy's worth glory in. Because I didn't have anything to do with it. I was caught up in heaven by the will of God. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't even know. Only God knows. But because this was a work of God, not a man boasting of himself, as so many had done in the, uh, to the Corinthians, he said, this is somebody that's worth glorying in. Of such a one will I glory, but of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. Here's that word infirmities again. It means weakness. It can sometimes be translated sickness. But you can well understand that he's not talking about sickness up to this point. He's talking about the weakness that's brought him into the, all the things that he's experienced. Now all the things that he's experienced that we just read about in chapter 11. I kind of like to look at this as a list of things that couldn't stop him. That's the whole reason he's telling us the list. He's saying, here's what people brag about in themselves, and they don't have near as much to brag about as I would if I was in the business of bragging. But of all the things he talked about in the perils, in the city, in the wilderness, in the hunger and thirst, in the fastings, in the watchings, in the night and the day, in the deep, in the three shipwrecks, five times receiving 39 stripes from the Jews, of all these things, he's not talking about sickness. He's never referred to sickness. There's no reason why we would expect the word infirmities to be used in chapter 11 to refer to sickness or disease of any type. He's talking about the frailty of the body at the hands of men. So again, here he talks about I'll glory in my weakness. Of such a one will I glory, yet of myself I will not glory, but in mine infirmities. For though I would desire to glory... I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. In other words, he's saying, now that's the end of my glorying, because I don't want anybody to think that I'm stepping out of bounds or operating contrary to what God would have me to do. Now let's stop there before he's going to begin talking about the thorn in the flesh. But I want to make a couple of points before we go further. Why would he choose this method or this manner to speak to the Corinthians? It had to come from somewhere. Now, he said himself, I'm not telling you these things because the Lord wants me to. But the point that he's making is of all the people that they're giving 
heed to and listening to because they try to give themselves their own credibility through troubles and experiences, bad experiences that they've had and so forth. Paul is saying nobody can shine a candle or hold a candle up to the things I've experienced. Now, in order to make that point, and I believe it's important for the Spirit of God for that point to be made because that shows us what to watch out for concerning false ministers and people that are there to take advantage of us rather than do the will of God. If you look at the things that Paul warned the church about, the number one thing throughout all of his letters are false ministers. Number one. The warnings he gave to last after he was gone, knowing that he was to be martyred. Number one on the list is false ministers. Shouldn't be a surprise to us when ministers fall. Shouldn't be a surprise to us when they're caught in sin or things like that. We should expect that that's the way that things will go in many cases because men are just uh, ministers are men and they're humans just like everybody else. And if they don't have the right attitude and the right heart toward ministry to begin with, that's going to create problems for them. These are the people that Paul is talking about. Now, the Holy Ghost knows this letter is going to be saved, doesn't he? The Holy Ghost knows, and if you've ever seen a, uh, I've got a little movie about the, the holy book that talks about all the things that God spared the writings of Paul primarily in the, Old, in the New Testament and such from being destroyed and, and through fires and different things like that throughout the years. It's fascinating the, the, the protection that God put upon his word. Where would we be? If we knew about getting saved, if we had information about how to get saved, but we didn't know anything else from the Word, we wouldn't know who God is. We wouldn't know what His will is. We wouldn't know how to take hold of the things that He has provided for us through Jesus. We wouldn't even know what Jesus did for us outside of forgiveness of sins. And that's the way a lot of Christians live. They live with an understanding of the forgiveness of sins, but no further. And that's why they spend their lives confused. They can't figure out what God's doing or who God is or who's doing what in their lives. It's the Word and only the Word that gives us that information. So if it were not for the revelation of the Word, if it were not for the revelation that Paul received from the Holy Ghost himself, he said even Jesus himself, he called it his gospel because what he preached and who he Revealed to us by the Spirit of God that we are in Christ. Apparently nobody was preaching that until he did. So the Holy Ghost, knowing these things are going to be saved, I see the wisdom in Paul going against his inclination by comparing himself to these other false ministers. Let's read verse 6 again. For though I would desire to glory... I shall not be a fool. In other words, he's saying there's a human desire, a fleshly desire to brag on myself. But that's foolish. For I will say the truth, but now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. In other words, he says, with me you get what you see. It's not my job to pump myself up before you. It's not my job to make myself look better than who I really am, and who I really am is what you see me to be. Now, that must be what the false ministers are trying to do because that's the whole reason that he makes the comparison. Verse 7, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, 
the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, folks, I want you to realize something. You see that word weakness in verse 9? It's the same word for infirmities, just the next sentence. In other words, the word infirmities is twice mentioned twice there in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. He said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in infirmities or weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities or weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, weakness again, reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, folks, as I said to begin this, I don't think there's any passage of the Scripture that the church world, by and large, has gotten, worse, gotten wrong more or treated worse than these. I want to start taking this apart little by little. But first of all, we have to think about who Paul is. Paul tells us in another writing, the writing to the Galatians, he talks about the training that he had. He talks about his pedigree. He talks about who his parents were. He was well-respected. His parents were well-respected. He came from a fine, upper-class, elitist family. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, who was considered to be the greatest of the, the rabbis of his time. Maybe not the greatest of all times, but one of them. He's high on the list among the Jews even today. He had the same training and the same upbringing, the same education that the high priest would have. Now, the significance of that is part of the, tra uh, part of the uh, training or the education of the high priest. Anybody, and this is not just the high priest, but anybody in the priesthood. The high priest was not a, a specific individual that was designated that he'd be high priest forever. High priests usually stayed in place from uh, a period of one to two years. And then there was kind of a rotating thing among the priests. They all had the same training. They all had the same pedigree. And the reason for it is so that the people wouldn't get to looking at the high priest himself, but to remember and recognize that the high priest served as a go-between from God to the people and from the people back to God. So Paul knew what the training, he knew everything. I'm not sure I finished the sentence that I started before. Part of the high priest's training is they had to memorize the Old Testament. They had to be able to speak it from memory. Now, if you've ever tried to do any memorization or verse memorization and stuff like that, imagine how difficult it would be for the whole Bible. At least the whole of the Bible they had. It would just have been the Old Testament. But I say this for this purpose. When Paul uses certain terminology, he's always mindful of his Old Testament training. He knows when he picks certain words to use that these phrases, if they're in the Old Testament, then what he's writing will back up or be connected in some way or another to the things that are already written. And the Holy Ghost would certainly lead him to do so. The Holy Ghost is not going to contradict the Old Testament with the New. The New Testament doesn't do away with the Old. It fulfills it. And so the same things that were true under the Old Covenant are going to be true under the New Covenant. God never changes. Truth never changes. So when Paul talks about this thorn in the flesh, 
there are three times in the Old Testament, and he well knows this, there are three times where thorns or something similar to this phrase he uses, thorns in the flesh, are utilized. I want you to look at them with me real quick. First is Numbers chapter 33. Numbers chapter 33 is Moses telling the people of Israel about taking the promised land and what they will have to do to rid the promised land of their enemies. Notice verse 55. Numbers 33 verse 55. But if you will not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall come to pass that those which you let remain of them shall be pricks in your eyes and thorns in your sides and shall vex you in the land wherein you dwell. Now folks, does anybody think that Paul is really saying these people will become things sticking out of their eyes or sticking out of their sides? It's an illustration. It's a phrase that's used to illustrate the annoyance, the hindrance that the people of Israel or the, people, the enemies of Israel will provide for them and be to the children of Israel if they don't take care of them and do what God said. Now, what God said to do was wipe them out. Now, I know a lot of people will go all gushy on you and talk about it being the love of God to care about every man. That's true enough. But anybody you let into your relationship or into your family or into your house that's going to lead you away from the things of God, those people are not your friends. I see a lot of Christians entering into relationships with people that, that you can clearly see. Maybe they can't see it because they're too emotionally involved. But you can clearly see that the end result is not going to be to their spiritual good. Those people need to be dealt with harshly. So Paul knows. When he says thorns in your flesh, or the thorn in the flesh was given to him, he's using a terminology that's already used in the Old Testament. And it's an illustration to the hindrance. Keep that in mind, the hindrance. That these people, Numbers chapter 33, the enemies of Israel, will be to them. Eight years go by, and it brings us to Joshua chapter 23. I'll start in verse 11. Joshua is the leader of the children of Israel, and he's all about taking hold of the promised land, and they do so under his direction, under his leadership. He says, beginning in verse 11, take good heed, therefore, that yourselves, unto yourselves, that you love the Lord your God. Else if you do in any wise go back and cleave under the remnants of these nations. He's talking about the nations that they drove out of the promised land. Even those that remain among you and shall make marriages with them and go in unto them and they to you. Know for a certainty that the Lord your God will no more drive out any of these nations from before you. But they shall be snares and traps unto you and scourges in your side. And thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good land which the Lord your God has given you. He's saying if you intermarry with the wrong people, people that don't serve God but, in other, uh, but instead serve false idols, he said they'll pull you into their idolatry. He said not only will that stop the blessing of God from driving out the other nations from before you, but those people that you allow to remain, he said, there'll be scourges in your sides and thorns in your eyes. Paul knows this story, folks. Paul can recite this story word for word. 
So when he uses the phrase thorns in your uh, thorn in the flesh, what do you think he's thinking about? I believe very specifically that the Holy Ghost gave him that phrase to use for several reasons. First of all, as we're proving by the Old Testament, that it's an illustration of a certain thing, an annoyance or a hindrance to the people of God. But I also believe that the Holy Ghost had him say it that way because it makes necessary for you and me and everybody that came before us and everybody that comes after us to choose what God's word is revealing to us about himself. Paul didn't have to use the phrase thorn in the flesh, but he's doing so for a specific reason. Now here's the third one. The third one's over in 2 Samuel chapter 23. 2 Samuel chapter 23. These are the last words of David. If you go back to verse 1, it tells us these are the last words of David before he dies and goes off the scene. Let's pick up with verse 6. He said, but the sons of Belial, talking about the enemies of Israel again, shall be all of them as thorns thrust away because they cannot be taken with hands. So he's identifying the enemies of Israel as thorns. He doesn't go as so far as to say what the others said, uh, the other scriptures that we read said. He doesn't talk about thorns in your side or thorns in your eyes. But he's talking about people. Now, folks, one of the things that you need to be aware of, and turn back with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 so that we can see this and compare. But one of the things you have to be aware of that most people fail to recognize is that all of these illustrations that Paul is impressed and prompted by the Holy Ghost to use, all of these things that he describes, the illustrations that are used, are all personalities, not conditions. The enemies of Israel will be thorns in their sides and scourges in their eyes or whatever the phrases are. Every time that phrase is used, and the three times outside of Paul saying himself, talking about the thorn in the flesh, all the three Old Testament times that Paul would have to be aware of that were the reason that he used the words that he did and the illustration that he made. All those instances, every instance is talking about people. It's not talking about sickness. It's not talking about disease. It's not even talking about persecution. In their cases, in the Old Testament cases, it's talking about personalities. Did you get back to 2 Corinthians 12 yet? Let's read verse 7 again. And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh. It's a personality, folks. Paul identifies the hindrance to him and his ministry as being, as being the one that stirred up all the trouble and the persecution against him. Now back up to verse 6 again. Paul said, For though I would desire to glory, I shall not be as a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me that above that which he seeth me to be, or that he heareth of me. If Paul is saying what you see is what you get, how could he have been sick and still have the confidence of the people to believe for healing? For example, in Acts chapter 14, when Paul first goes to the region of Galatia, Paul starts off teaching in Iconium, and the devout women in the church, uh, in the synagogue, when they hear that he's leading them away from the keeping of the law of Moses and believing by faith, believing in the righteousness of God by faith in Jesus and his work, 
his sacrificial work. They stir up trouble against him, and so they have to flee to another town. And so in Lystra, there they preached the gospel. There was an impotent man, a man that was crippled in his feet for 14 years. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him cried with a loud voice and stand up, said, Stand upright on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now, folks, if Paul had some kind of eye disease, and there are all kinds of, of um, different teachings and people that have gone on record saying what Paul had, and they go into great detail. Many of them go into great detail about what the condition was, the sickness was, and how that it created a, a condition for pus to be running out of his eyes and just gross stuff, horrible stuff. That in their thinking, God brought on him to keep him from being exalted above measure. Well, how could somebody that was crippled believe for healing for themselves when they're looking at Paul with, with a terrible eye disease and pus coming out of his eyes? And if we take that a little bit further, if you remember in Acts chapter 19, it talks about God working special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were taken under the sick handkerchiefs and aprons. And where those handkerchiefs and aprons were laid on the sick, the diseases left them and the evil spirits that were behind them departed too. Can you imagine getting some kind of cloth or some kind of leather garment, which is what an apron would have been in those days, and find out that it's come from the Apostle Paul to bring healing to you? I don't know about you, but I have more confidence in burning that thing so I didn't get his eye disease. Too much of the church refuses to use their head on this stuff. Now back to what Paul said, unless there should be give, uh, lest I should be exalted above measure, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. If the revelations are the things that are causing him to be exalted above measure and God doesn't want him to be exalted above measure, then why didn't God just stop the revelation? Why not spread the revelation around? Give Paul part of what he identified as his gospel. Give Peter the rest of it. Folks, never does the Bible say that God humbles you. In fact, the Bible says God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. The Bible says that if we will humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us. God's not in the humbling business. He never has been, and it's contrary for, to his word for him to be so now or in Paul's day. God's not the one that humbles people. God commands us to humble ourselves so that he can exalt us. In other words, he's saying if we will humble ourselves to believe what the Word says, no matter what we think about it, no matter what we feel about it, no matter whether we think we measure up to it or not, but humble ourselves to the Word to accept the fact, for example, that we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Do you realize it's a matter of humility, it's a, it's a means of humility for you to stand up boldly and say, no matter what I, sins I've committed in the flesh, no matter what I stumble and fall over, I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus because God's word says so. Do you realize that's what true humility is? True humility is accepting what the Bible says to be true because it's God's word. True humility is to look sickness and disease in the face and say, Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses, and with his stripes I am healed. That's humility. Now the world, which most Christians are operating according to, will say, no matter what their intent is, well-meaning they may, they may be, 
But for any Christian that says, well, how do you feel? To go by your feeling that contradicts the word of God is the most spiritually proud thing you could do. That's what spiritual pride is. Spiritual pride is you taking a position where you know best. Well, any position that we develop or accept that's not based on the word of God is a position of pride. The Bible says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. So according to the word, and Paul even said it this way, Paul said that God has made us rich. Jesus was made poor for our sakes that through his poverty we might be made rich. A lot of the church world would say, well, that's just proud. God doesn't want you to be rich. Well, then why did he give you the means and the method to get it? Why did he make riches a part of what Jesus provided for us? Now, I'm not saying it's the most important thing, but you know as well as I do, if you've ever faced a bill and the payment of that bill is coming up and you don't have the money, it's important to you enough to want it. I'm not saying riches are the most important thing, but it's part of what Jesus paid for. So who are we to say, no, we're not going to take that. Jesus shed blood for that, but we won't accept that because we'll just be over here and be humble. Humility is accepting what God has done for you to be true in your life. The church world's got humility and pride all backwards. So Paul said, lest I be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. Who gave him the revelations? Did God not know that the abundance of the revelations would exalt Paul? Did that come as a surprise? Did God see what was going on and say, man, I never planned on that. I'd never given anybody this kind of revelation before. And I should have thought this through better before I did it to Paul. Of course not. God knew what the result would be. God's not the one that's trying to keep Paul from being exalted. In fact, he's the one that gave the revelations to him that exalted him. Who wants to keep him from being exalted? Well, according to Paul, the devil. Satan is the one that wanted to keep him from being exalted above measure. So it says, lest I be exalted above measure, there was given unto me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan. Now, folks, if Paul's thorn in the flesh, which Paul said was the messenger of Satan, and he's talked to the Lord about it three times at least. If it's the messenger of Satan and God did it to him, then that means God and the devil are working hand in hand. Show me anywhere in the Bible where that's true. It's impossible. See, folks, if God wanted to make you sick, where would he get the sickness? He didn't create it. The Bible says that God made an end of everything he created at the end of the first six days of creation. The Genesis account of creation. You can't find sickness or disease anywhere. At the end of those six days, he looked at everything and said it's very good. You know why it was very good? Because there was no work of the devil to be seen. There's no result of sin or unrighteousness or sickness or disease or poverty or any other such thing. It was perfect because it, it was good, very good, as God said, because it was just the way he created it to be. And then it says he made an end of everything that he created. So anything that comes into being after that, he didn't make it. When Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, then spiritual death, the law of sin and death, began to rule and reign over mankind. That included sickness and disease, but God didn't make it. Neither did God want it to be there. Man's the one that was given authority in the earth, and he's the one that allowed it in. 
So here we see, unless I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh. We've talked about that. Something or someone that was hindering Paul's ministry. He recognized it as the messenger of Satan. Now look at that word messenger. That word messenger is the word angelos in the Greek. It's the word that's translated angel 181 times in the New Testament. Seven times. Seven times, this being one of the seven. The word angelos in the Greek is translated messenger. But in every case, in every situation, in all 188 times that the word is used in the Scripture in the New Testament, since it's in Greek, it would be the only place it would be used was in the New Testament. 188 times it talks about a personality. It's referring to a being, not a sickness, not a disease, not a condition of any type whatsoever. It's referring to a personality. Now, if we go a little bit further, Paul says, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations that was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, lest I should be exalted to buffet me. I missed that part. To buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. The word buffet means to deliver blow after blow. Now, tell me what sickness delivers blow after blow. See, if Paul's thorn was sickness, then that would mean one of two things. That would mean it would have to be a, a whole parade of sickness and disease that would come, upon, come after him and upon him one after the other, after the other, after the other. Well, sickness doesn't do that. Or it would have to be one sickness that he kept getting again and again and again and again. Well, sickness doesn't work that way either. The fact that he uses the word buffet to deliver blow after blow after blow. We see from the words that we read in the previous chapter. All the things that came upon him and came against him. All the different circumstances that, and experiences that he had. Everything that he describes. And folks, about the only thing that's left off that list that Paul says in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. About the only thing not on that list is sickness and disease. You can't identify much, uh, uh, much of anything else that people could have done to him that he doesn't describe. So the word buffet has to be instructed for us. And again, here's the Holy Ghost impressing upon Paul to use that. The Holy Ghost gave us enough information to identify and understand what Paul is saying if we want to hear it. And unfortunately, people that don't accept the truth that we're teaching, that Paul says that the Holy Ghost saved for us, in most cases, they want it to be the way they believe, whether they're right or wrong. So, Paul said, this thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan was given to buffet him, lest he should be exalted above measure. Verse 8, for this thing I besought the Lord thrice, three times, that it might depart from me. Rotherham's translation and Weymouth's translation, both translate that as he or him. So this is not just some far-fetched idea that we've come up with on our own. Two very respected, widely respected translations. The translators in both of those cases were convinced that it was exactly what Paul said that it was, a messenger or an angel, a personality, and so they identify in the next verse, for this thing I besought the Lord three times that he or him would be delivered, that I would be delivered from it. Now, what did Jesus answer him? Now, folks, I've got to tell you, I am humbled 
when I see behind, look behind the scenes and see Paul's prayer life. Paul is saying this. He's making an amazing statement. One that's hard for me to live up to. I'm growing. Thank God I am growing. I had not got to where I want to be yet, but I'm not where I was. But Paul seems to make this a big deal. He says, I talked to the Lord three times about this. Paul's not used to talking to the Lord about anything three times and not getting an answer. Well, I wish I could say that about me. Don't you? Don't you wish you could say that about me too? <laughs> Paul says, I prayed about this three whole times. My goodness, most people th pray about things more than three times. Any one thing more than three times before lunchtime. But Paul said, I asked the Lord about this three times. I besought that it or he would be taken from me these three times. But the Lord answered and said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Now, folks, this may be something that you would not know if you didn't have somebody to tell you. If that's the case, I'm delighted to be the one to tell you. But the grace of God is never in Scripture applied in any way whatsoever to the physical body. Grace is always used, Old Testament and New Testament, more New Testament, of course, than Old. But it's always used as a supply for the inward man. It's an internal thing. It's not the grace of God that brings healing to us. Well, in a roundabout way it is, but it's not the application of grace that is the healing power of God. The Bible talks about the life of God that quickens our mortal body. It talks about the life of Jesus made manifest in mortal flesh. Healing is a manner of the life of Jesus that was given, the life meaning the shedding of his blood, not just the example he set for us here on the earth, but the shedding of his blood. That's what the life of God is talking about. It's the life of God, the presence of the Holy Spirit that is within us. That's what's applied to the physical body in the healing power of God. Not the grace of God. Never the grace of God. So when Paul says, Jesus said, my grace is sufficient for thee, he's talking about an inner strength or an inner something that would put Paul over and keep him from being hindered by this messenger of Satan. Let's read this again. And he said unto me, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Notice what Paul goes on to say. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Here's the same word, infirmities. It means weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Now, folks, let me ask you something. Well, let me read the next verse before I make the comments. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, weakness, in reproaches, in necessities. Here's the hungers and thirsting again. In persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then am I strong. If the grace of God was sufficient for him, but Paul's condition was eye disease or some kind of sickness or disease, how could he be made strong in his weakness if the healing power of God was not given to him? Do you understand what I'm asking? Let me say it again or maybe say it in a different way to bring greater clarity. When Paul says, most gladly will I therefore rejoice in my infirmities and reproaches and persecutions and distresses and so forth. 
for when I am weak, then am I strong. Isn't the whole point when you identify a weakness, the strength of God puts you over? Well, if Paul's weakness is eye disease or some terrible sickness or disease, then how could he be strong in that if the power of God didn't relieve him of it? So the very ones that say Paul was sick, this thorn in the flesh was a sickness or disease, they're ignoring the fact that Paul is saying that the strength of God came on him to overcome it. If it's overcoming sickness and disease, then we, that, we know that that's overcome by healing, the healing power of God. How could the strength of God be made perfect in weakness if you are commanded and instructed and required to stay weak? Are you with me? See what I'm saying? So Paul said, therefore, will I rather take pleasure in weaknesses, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I want you to look with me over to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Uh, where will I start? Let's start in verse 11. Paul said, I am afraid of you or for you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Now let me give you the context of the book of Galatians. Paul established a church there. It's told us about the establishment of the church there in Galatia. And Galatia wasn't a town. Galatia was a region. And so there are several cities that make up the region of Galatia. Iconium was one. Lystra was one. Derby was another. And Acts chapter 14 tells us specifically about Paul's first time in that region. I mentioned before that the people in Iconium, the, the devout women, the, the uh, Jewish women, the wives or the leader or the wives of the leaders of the synagogue, most probably, stirred up trouble against Paul, and it ran him out of town. And so he went to Lystra and Derby. In Lystra, he began to preach, and he got uh, one crippled man healed. But then it tells us that the Jews from Iconium caught up to him. Now, I've gotten a little ahead of myself here. Let me tell you the, the story of what's going on. After Paul established these churches in Galatia, he wound up going to other places that God would lead him and took him, directed him to go to. Well, after he was gone, the Jews sent people, many of them from Jerusalem, into these synagogues, the cities where these, in the synagogues in the cities where Paul had ministered. And they came in contact with the Christians, the people that got saved when Paul was there. And I'm sure the churches continued to grow uh, at some rate after he was gone. And the Jews would come into these churches, which was a common tactic of what, common tactic of what they did no matter where Paul went. But they came in and they imposed the law of Moses back on the people. They said, now this Jesus stuff, that's fine, but you still have to keep the law of Moses. You still have to make sacrifices. You still have to do all this stuff. And so when Paul writes back to the Galatians, in the earliest chapters of the book of Galatians as we know it, he says, who made you believe something that was not true? How stupid can you be to think that you have to keep the law of Moses since you've accepted Jesus into your heart? And it created such a stir that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews and attached it to the letter written to the Galatians. What other reason would there be for why Paul would not identify himself as being the author of the letter to the Hebrews? It's certainly Paul's message. It's Paul's revelation. Peter couldn't have been the one that wrote the book, to he, uh, book of Hebrews. He didn't understand all the things that Paul talked about. And Peter even said, our brother Paul speaks of things that are hard to understand. 
Well, if he didn't understand it, he can't be the author of the book. Now, is it possible that somebody like Timothy could have been the author? Yeah, it's possible. It would have to be somebody that was familiar with Paul's revelation. It's what he called his gospel because that's what the book of Hebrews is all about. But Timothy was a Gentile. He didn't have all the training in the Old Testament that Paul had. And so how could Timothy be the one to tell us about all the Old Testament references and the things which he had no knowledge of? So it's possible that Timothy could have been the author just from the standpoint that he knew the message. But he wouldn't have known the background, the things that came to Paul and that Paul used to try to convince the Jews because he was a Jew. Timothy was not. Timothy wouldn't have made any headway with the Jews. They would have looked at him and said, well, you're a Gentile. What do you know about anything? But they couldn't do that with Paul. Nobody, none of the Jews could discount Paul because he had the same training as the high priest, the highest of the high of them all. And they knew he knew his stuff. That was part of the reason, in my opinion, why God chose Paul. He has a knowledge of the Old Testament that's as great as any of the people that it will come out in opposition to it. Now, some people will try to say and try to confirm Paul's eye disease by something he wrote to the Galatians as well. When Paul said, you see how large a letter I've written unto you. Well, the book of Galatians is six chapters. That's not long. It's not nearly as long as what he wrote to the Romans. Not nearly as long as what he wrote to the Corinthians. Either letter that we have record of to the Corinthians. So how could Paul be saying that he's writing such a long letter by his own hand? Some people have tried to say that that's proof of Paul's eye disease because when he says what large letters I've written in, he's talking about written what he's had to write, big tall letters that he's had to use because his eyesight was so bad. How stupid can you be? But if the book of Galatians is attached to the book of Hebrews, it's bigger than anything he ever wrote. Now, some people will try to bolster their position on Paul's thorn in the flesh being sickness and disease by using what he said here in Galatians chapter 4, verse 12. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as you are. You have not injured me at all. You haven't hurt me. You've hurt yourself. Verse 13. You know, please get this. Pay attention to this. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation which was in my flesh you despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Jesus Christ himself. Where is then the blessedness that you spoke of? You used to say good things about me. Where is the blessedness you spoke of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you had have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. See, Paul's saying that he had some kind of eye disease. He's saying that they would have been willing to pluck out their own eyes and give them to him because they loved him so much. Now, folks, if that is the case, since that is the position that many opponents in the body of Christ take, then we have to go back and look at the first time that he was there. Look with me to Acts chapter 14. Acts chapter 14, he's already run away from Antioch and Iconium. Here's the story that I quoted to you about going to Lystra. Verse 6, they were aware of it, aware of the, the death plot, the assassination attempt against his life. 
So they were aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and under the region that lies round about. The region that lies round about is Galatia. Look it up in your map. Any good Bible map will show you. And there they preached the gospel. And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. Now let me make a couple of comments here. This is the first time that Paul goes to Galatia. So this would have to correspond with what he said in Galatians chapter 4 that we just read. You remember how then the first time I was with you, I was there in infirmity of the flesh. And my temptation, which was in my flesh, you despised not. But cared about me so much that you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Right? So that means if Paul had some sickness, he had it when he was there the first time. Again, we'll, re we'll ask the question and go further than we did last time. But how could the crippled man have faith to be healed if Paul was staring through some kind of terrible oozing pus-filled thing with his eyes? Why would not his first thought, first thought be, well, this sounds real good, but if God was willing to heal everybody, why are you sick? What is that stuff in your eyes? So when this man is healed... Maybe we should make this point as well. If Paul did have some eye disease or if he did have some sickness, he didn't let that, the crippled man didn't let that stop him from receiving his healing. So why should we therefore let Paul's thorn keep us from being healed too? Now, I'm not saying that's the way it is. It, I don't believe it could have been that way. I don't believe Paul could have used the terminology that he used in writing to the Corinthians. Or let me say it even this way. I don't believe that what he wrote to the Corinthians could have been inspired by the Holy Ghost if that's what he was saying. Well, this creates quite a stir. This crippled man being healed creates quite a stir. And so there were people that grabbed them and started saying that these are their gods, Jupiter and Mercury. And so Paul tried to calm them down and finally did. Verse 18, we'll just try to skip over some of the thing for the sake of time. Verse 18, Paul says, after he gets them quieted down, these sayings scare, with these sayings, scarce they restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. They thought this was such miraculous work, such supernatural work, that these have to be the gods come down to us in the flesh. And Paul has to disabuse them of that notion. He has to dissuade them by saying, we're men just like you. This is the power of God, not your gods. Verse 19, and there came thither, they came to that place, Lystra in other words, Certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who having persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. Now, folks, get what's going on here. These people are really ready to sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas because of the spectacular and miraculous work that they did. But now, just a short time later, the Jews from Antioch and Iconium just, uh, convinced them to take part in the stoning of this man that's done this big miracle. You put your faith in people and you're going to be disappointed. Even people that seem to be with you and even people that seem to love God better than you or as much as you. Those are people that can still disappoint you. So, again, let me read it. There came there from certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who, having persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city supposing that he had been dead. What would make the people 
the Jews that come with one purpose, and that purpose was to put Paul to death. What would make them think that Paul was dead? Would they not check him to see? Folks, these people are experienced. The fact that they would come from Antioch and Iconium for the purpose of killing somebody through stoning, this is not their first time. Now, I could understand if people came from Iconium that had a different belief system. They're still believing in the law of Moses. And they come to try to persuade the people not to believe what Paul said. What would they do about the crippled man that was healed? But the guy that told us this, he healed the crippled man. But they didn't come for the purpose of persuading the people for anything other than not being mad at them and not attacking them for killing Paul through stoning. They supposed he had been dead. I believe that it has to be that he was dead. Paul talked about being stoned in the list that he gave to the Corinthians. I wonder if he's talking about this. Well, why wouldn't he? How be it, verse 20, how be it as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them unto the Lord and who, upon whom they believed. Paul goes back to the same cities that the people that stoned him came out of. I would love to have some further information but since we don't, I just have to imagine that that would have made quite a stir. Because these people that came from Iconium and, and Antioch to Lystra to stone Paul, left him for dead, went back to their own cities and said, we don't have to bother about this guy anymore. And then a matter of a few days later, maybe a few weeks later, Paul comes walking down the road and people said, I thought you said he was dead. Now, folks, what would be the impact or the result of being stoned to death? Would not the stones make marks in your body? So when Paul comes walking down the road and people said, I don't understand this, we, we stoned him to death. I'm sure they would have been able to say, well, he looks dead. If he wasn't walking, we might think that he was dead. And Paul, the Bible identifies that as the first time that Paul was with them. Now, having said that, let's go back to Galatians chapter 4 again real quickly. Galatians chapter 4, he said, you know, verse 13, you know how that through infirmity, the word infirmity is the word weakness, same word we've been looking at before. You know how the, that through infirmity of the flesh, I preached the gospel unto you at the first. And my temptation, word temptation literally means experience or adversity, which was in my flesh, you despised not nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where then is the blessedness that you spoke of? For I bear you record that if it had been possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and would have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Now, two things I want you to see here, folks. First of all, the infirmity of the flesh that he went to them in was only the first time that he was there. Otherwise, why would he say, you know how that through infirmity of the flesh I came to you the first time? If whatever this infirmity of the flesh had not changed, then Paul would have said, you know how that through infirmity of the flesh I go everywhere. But he didn't. 
He said, I had an infirmity of the flesh the first time I was with you, which indicates the second time he was with him he didn't have, or the third time or ever how many times Paul went through that, that area. The fact that he identifies the infirmity of the flesh at the first indicates that it was not a lasting condition. Now that brings us to the same thing that he said about their blessedness. He said, I know that you were willing. I remember from the first time I was with you how that you were willing to give me your own eyes if you could. Now there's one of two possibilities for that. One possibility is that he's saying that as a figure of speech. We've often said to, uh, about certain people that we loved, I'd give my right arm to help that guy. Would we really mean we'd saw our right arm off? Or are we using it as an example just a phrase that indicates our love and concern for whoever that other person we're talking about is. That seems to be what Paul says they thought about him the first time he was there. Well, the other option is, the other possibility, is that the stoning created such a condition that he looked to be in terrible condition, a terrible state. You ever seen some of these heavyweight boxers after the fight's over, even the ones that win? You ever seen their faces swollen up to where their eyes are shut? Sometimes these people have to be led around by the hand because their eyes are so damaged or their face is so damaged from the beating that they took that they can't see from their eyes. That's possible with Paul too. Now you can decide for yourself which one works. But neither one indicates that Paul had some disease or some malady or some sickness. Paul's thorn in the flesh was exactly what he said it was. It was the messenger of Satan. It wasn't the messenger of God. It wasn't the work of God to keep him from being exalted. God's work was to reveal the truth to him so that he could preach and establish the word of God, establish the churches on the word of God that was revealed to him. God's plan was not that Paul would be hindered or detained in his ministry. There were times where he got jailed as a result of doing the, word, the will of God and going to the places that he was sent to. But there were a lot of miraculously miraculous deliverances in those situations too. So Paul's thorn in the flesh could not have been sickness and disease. It's impossible. Now you can see it if you want to, or you can reject it if you want to. And if you're going to go to some churches, you're going to have to reject it to get along. And that's the position and the choice that a lot of people make. One thing that is interesting to me, though, is that the book of Acts ends with the fact that Paul was two years in his own hired house after being taken to Rome to stand before Caesar. He does go before Caesar. And the last years we have recorded of his life in the book of Acts the last two years, he spoke with nobody forbidding him, nobody hindering him. There was no angel of Satan, messenger of Satan in Rome that stirred up the same trouble against him that had stirred up trouble with it, against him all over the world where he had gone. So if the grace of God was sufficient for the inner man to overcome the, the persecution that he identified, he ended his life without being persecuted by the people. But, of course, Nero put him to death, trying to gain favor with the Jews. Let me close with this. Turn with me over to James chapter 5. 
James chapter 5. This is pertaining to healing. Not according to Paul. Or Paul's condition. Paul's thorn. Verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. The sick. Being saved from sickness is healing. The prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up. And if he has committed sins. They shall be forgiven him. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Folks, there should be nothing that hinders us or keeps us from taking hold of the healing power of God that Jesus paid the price for us to have. There should be no sin. There should be no wrongdoing. There should be nothing that the devil would use to try to condemn us. There should be nothing that works effectively to keep us out of what God has for us. If he's committed sin, they'll be forgiven. So many times with the things that come against us, the devil will tell you this is your own doing. This is because of some sin in your life or something you have done or something you haven't done. James is speaking by the Holy Ghost and says, if that is the case, which it rarely is, but if that is the case, even that shouldn't keep you from taking hold of the healing power of God that Jesus purchased. Paul's thorn was a hindrance. Jesus said, and Paul quoted him, they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Nowhere does the Bible tell us that we've been delivered from persecution. But when the persecution begins, even in Paul's case, if we're to use his life as an example, he relied on the grace of God for the inward man, not the outward man. And that brought him to the place where he ministered unhindered for the last two years of his life that we have record of. Healing is the will of God for every man and every woman, every boy and every girl, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for making your words so plain and so clear to us. We recognize and even rejoice over the fact that it takes some digging that is left to us to understand the truth of the word. Because anything that's worth having is worth digging into to find the truth. We thank you, Father, that we have found your word to be truth. We thank you that the truth of your word indicates to us that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses, and with his stripes we are healed. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for taking our infirmities, our weaknesses, as well as our sicknesses, and making a way for us no matter where we find ourselves, no matter what we're facing, no matter what our condition or our circumstances are. We declare that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. Well, if we were healed by the stripes of Jesus, then we are healed now. So we lift our hands to you in praise, Father. For some of us, it's the sacrifice of praise. Because the sickness or disease may still be attached to our bodies. But Father, in Jesus' name, we declare that according to the word of God, we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We magnify you and glorify you for that fact, for that truth. No matter what it looks like in our flesh, no matter the doctor's diagnosis, we thank you that your word is greater than any other words that could ever be spoken. And because we believe your word to be true, we say with our mouths, healing is ours now. 
Healing is ours now in Jesus' name. Healing is ours now according to the word of God which cannot lie. Oh, Father, it's so good to be healed. You know how we've suffered with these things in many cases for many years. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you that the life of God within us quickens our mortal bodies and restores us to divine health. We love you, Father. We thank you for being so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us.